Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Here at Taplines, we're proud to produce a podcast that's artisanal, handmade, and totally free of corporate influence. A craft podcast, if you will. You probably wouldn't appreciate it if some multinational corporation worth bajillions of dollars started making ripoff shows to trick you into downloading them and then use their unrivaled distribution muscle to put those shows everywhere, right? Hopefully. Of course you wouldn't. That's nefarious, despicable, capitalism at its worst. <laughs> Around the turn of the 21st century, though, as America's craft brewers started to sell serious amounts of beer at semi-national scale, that's more or less what big beer companies decided to do. But how? Drinkers wanted hoppy, full-flavored beers brewed by disaffected Gen X beardos and also Jim Cook. They drank these microbrews for the taste and for the authentic stories and for the cultural cachet and for the stick-it-to-the-man attitude. In other words, all the stuff that publicly traded, highly polished macro brewers like Anheuser-Busch simply couldn't copy. Or could they? After all, distribution is everything in the beer business, and the heavyweights had wholesale networks that authentic craft brewers could only dream of. So they, and I'm really talking about AB here, started making lookalikes, figuring they'd keep wholesalers happy, undercut microbrewers, and muddy the retail waters all in one fell swoop. For Sierra Nevada, there was Pacific Ridge, for Scheinerbach, they introduced Ziegenbach. Elk Mountain Red Ale sure sounded like a craft beer until you learned that it shared a name with AB's corporate hop farm, and it was the first ale the company had ever produced when it rolled it out in the mid-90s. These beers weren't the real deal, but thanks to AB's nearly limitless resources and massive distribution footprint, they still posed a threat to the budding craft beer industry. This week on Tap Lines, we're talking to beer industry insider turned antagonist Anat Barron, whose 2009 documentary Beer Wars pulled back the curtain on the power dynamics at play between craft beer and the so-called crafty beers that big breweries were trying to sneak down drinkers' throats. Before the film, Anat was the general manager of a little brand you may have heard of called Mike's Hard Lemonade. Since the film, she's gone way beyond the beer business and now works as a futurist. But today she's taking us to the recent past. It's a not barren, it's beer wars, it's craft versus crafty mayhem in the middle tier, and it's all right here on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. And not barren, welcome to Tap Lines. Thank you for having me. And not, where are you joining us from today? I am in Los Angeles, California, so don't judge. <laughs> Sunny LA. It looks like a nice day there, judging by the light filled office that you're you're calling in from. Yes, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's been raining. We've had atmospheric rivers. This is a year for the history books, but I think we're coming out on the other side. Well, good. I'm glad you're staying dry and I'm glad you were able to join us today. Listener, for those of you who do not know Anat Baron or why she's joining us here on Tap Lines today. Um, we're in the presence of greatness. Uh, if I oh. if I can heap some praise upon my guest for a moment, Anat Baron uh, was the force behind a 2009 film that you may or may not be familiar with uh, that changed the way I think about the beer industry. When a younger, slimmer Dave Infante with a fuller head of hair uh, <laughs> was was just beginning his uh, reporting journey on the beer industry, was just starting to focus in on this as a beat that I would spend a lot of time in. I'm talking, of course, not about uh, your 2009 documentary film, Beer Wars, um, which has, you know, like I said, came out, gosh, at this point, 14 years ago, um, but really was influential both in its time and since I still go back and watch it sometimes for the way in which you were able to peel back, um, you know, the, the, the function or the curtain on how the, the beverage alcohol industry and specifically the beer industry uh, functions in, in these United States. Anat, when you set out to make that film, was that the goal? Did you wind up with this project sort of taking a different turn? Tell me how, tell us how Beer Wars came to be. So, um, it's kind of a crazy story because I should say, first of all, so you don't ask me any questions and you already know this, but just so the audience knows, I'm allergic to alcohol. So I have no idea 
what any of it tastes like. So that was never my interest here. I wasn't trying to make a film and, you know, run around the country and get free beer. That wasn't it. Um, I actually, I'm just going to take you back because I think it's an interesting lesson in how life works sometimes. So in 2000, 2001, I had a travel startup, technology startup. One of my investors owned a company called Mike's Hard Lemonade. 9-11 happened. Obviously, uh, not only was it a horrible tragedy for the world, but there was no travel going on. And so the travel business is not a good business to be in, in September, you know, on September 12th, 2001. No. And on that day, I got a call from my friend who owned Mike's Hard Lemonade, who was an investor in my startup. And he said, look, travel is going to take time to come back. He was a bit of an opportunist. And he said, come help me with my new fledgling company. And so I said, you are crazy. I can't drink the product. How in the world can I help you? But somehow he convinced me and I came in, you know, at the beginning just to help out. And then I ended up running the entire company and built it to about 200 million plus in three years. So Mm. I was thrown into an industry that I knew nothing about. And the thing that most people didn't understand or don't understand even until today is that alcohol is one of the most regulated industries in the U.S. and that we have this very peculiar and particular system called the three-tier system, which makes it really difficult to be an entrepreneur. It makes it really difficult to be small because you are dependent on a middle layer called the distributor. And this particular system exists only in the U.S. and has its roots in prohibition. So that's another podcast. So when I left Mike's after just a little over three years, I sat down and thought about um, all of the interesting things that I learned about the industry. I also noticed because I was because I couldn't drink, I should also share. I had to understand why people liked this Mike's Hard Lemonade because honestly, mm. I didn't think it smelled very good. So I just had no <laughs> idea, right? Like what it was about it. So I traveled around the country constantly. I did what most company leaders don't do, which I always tell people to do is to get out of your office, get out of your house and go where the customers are. So I started hanging out in bars. I started hanging out in grocery stores. I started following people to their cars, not as a stalker, but just to try to understand (laughs) why are people buying this product? What is it about it that they like, right? Very important when you're launching a, a consumer product. And While I was traveling, I started noticing around 2004, 2005, especially in the Pacific Northwest, like Seattle, Portland, these craft breweries, these these beers in the coolers of the grocery stores and the liquor stores that I was visiting, and also in the bars. And I just, they had these really interesting names, and they seemed to be capturing a lot of attention. And so mm-hmm. it just got me super curious. I knew nothing about craft beer because, again, as a non-drinker, who cares, right? It's not in my right. world. Um, and so I had seen the movie, this very long-winded response, but I like to be thorough. Um, I had seen uh, the movie, who, the, oh, my God, the name escapes me, where the guy eats hamburgers. Um, Supersize you know, me. Supersize me. Sure. Sorry, it's been a long day. I've been on calls since five o'clock my time. Um, yeah. So I saw Supersize Me and I was like, oh, I wonder if anybody's ever done anything to expose the industry and educate people because I saw that it was an inflection point and nobody had. So having never made a documentary film before, um, I was like, oh, I bet it's easy. I'm going to go do it. That's how it started. And that's what eventually led to Beer Wars, which came out in 2009. I think like the origin of Mike's Hard Lemonade and your experience with that, it weaves in in such an interesting way to what you wound up doing, you know, with Beer Wars and, you know, sort of the way you laid out how the industry works. Because some of the themes that you're describing with getting Mike's Hard to catch on and getting Mike's hard to get buy-in from the middle tier, those, those powerful distributors um, were some of the challenges that the craft beer industry was also having at that time. I mean, we think of craft beer now, similar to F and B's, we think of it as a lot more mainstream, but this was not necessarily 
this was the, this was a tough moment for the craft beer industry as well. I mean, the you know they had kind of boomed in the late '80s. There was that sort of downturn in the '90s where there was a shakeout in in the industry, and I think a lot of producers that were in it for the wrong reasons sort of you know closed up shop. So coming into the aughts, uh, you had you know, especially in the Pacific Northwest, you had some really, you know, in California, you had some regional, regionally strong players, but getting to retail, getting to drinkers, which is that access that's essential to sell product, right? Has to go through distributors even more so then than now, you know, there's been some loosening with self-distribution in some States, but, uh, and to, to do that, the craft brewers, just like you at Mike's Hard Lemonade had to convince the distributors, Hey, this is stuff that people want to drink. And I think that that's like a great segue to start sort of peeling back what you found and what you, you know, sort of revealed and laid out in Beer Wars because you've always, and we've talked what a half dozen times over the years, we've spoken for many pieces that I was reporting. And what I've always appreciated about, you know, your, your perspective is that you've drilled into me every single time. Like distribution is the whole ball game, right? You can have an amazing product. Everyone wants it. Well, guess what? If you can't get it to shelves, which you're not allowed to do yourself in almost every state, uh, you can't sell it. And that's it. You could, you know, Try telling your investors that like, hey, everyone loves it, but we're not bringing in revenue. Doesn't work, right? That's not a business. Um, Tell me a little, yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, and and tell our listeners who may not be, uh, who certainly don't have the experience you do, but may not even be as apprised of the situation as I am. What the three tier system looked like at that time. I mean, what was the route to market for these smaller brands that you wound up interacting with when you were producing the movie? So I really wanted to make a movie about how hard it was to be an entrepreneur in America because I saw running a small company and it was small at the beginning. It was a startup basically, right? What we'd be called today a startup. Um, I saw how hard it was because not only is the beer industry one of the most regulated industries in the country, and I I did this for the movie. We counted 37,000 beer laws. Um, Not only does every county have a beer (laughs) law, but every state There are federal beer laws. It is so complicated. Like, you know, there's a scene in the movie where literally I went to our lawyer's office and we built this giant thing that then collapsed of books. I mean, you just cannot, you just can't fit all the laws in one room. And so the the complexity is is partially because of the three-tier system. And the three-tier system basically says, if I want to get something to market, right, I make the product. I need a middleman to take it to the retailer who then, let's complicate this even more, can get it to the actual end consumer or the drinker. You know, when I was at Mike's, I didn't really have a lot of time to try to understand this system and where it came from. It was just told to me because, you know, you you landed a company, it's already going, you got to just run as fast as you can. And so what Beer Wars allowed me to do was to take a step back and to ask this big question. What is this three-tier system? Why is it hard for someone small to get to market in what is supposed to be a free enterprise country, right? That is supposed to be our economy where everybody has equal access, where everyone Mm -hmm. has access to the American dream. So I became super obsessed with those really big questions and decided to find some people in the industry who were small at the time and follow them. That was my only way to really try to suss out how does this work is to is to look at it through different people's lenses. And and I literally spent over three years waiting for stuff to happen. Don't ever make that kind of documentary for anybody who's thinking about it. <laughs> it's just it's much better to go back in history and you know have all the footage. So and so and and I started asking questions not only of the brewers that I brought into the film. But I went to, to the source. I went to talk to distributors. I went to Washington. I believe that mm-hmm. in my film is the only <laughs> footage, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, of lobbying. I actually filmed what it's like to lobby um, as part, because I was fascinated, like, why do they shut down Washington, D.C., Congress, both houses for three days while the beer distributors go to town? What is mm. it? Why do they have yeah. so much power? And so I, I tried to look through all the different lenses and the angles as a filmmaker, 
who was an insider, but wasn't really an insider, you know, and, and try to ask the questions that we should be asking. Yeah. And one of the ways that I feel like a lot of people don't understand that it does work is that, and you showed this in in Beer Wars, and certainly this has borne out as we've seen the craft brewing industry develop since you released the movie, is that um, the big houses, the big producers um, ally with you know their distribution networks, which are nominally independent firms across the country, but have this very symbiotic codependent relationship with one. Yeah, right. Independent with scare quotes, uh, listener, just in case you, you didn't uh, hear the smirk as we were, as we were saying that word. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that you show is that even though these, this middle tier is nominally independent and is there to prohibit big producers like Anheuser-Busch, like Miller Coors and now Molson Coors, uh, to project too much power into the market and bend it to their will. That's not always the way it winds up like taking place in practice, right? I mean, so one thing to understand, distributors have trucks. There's only so much room on the truck, just like in the store. There's only so much room in a beer cooler. There's only so much room in a convenience store in a cooler. So for every new product that goes in, this is something that people really need to understand. Something has to come out. It's not infinite. There isn't infinite space. So it's really about economics. And what the distributors are doing, it's trying to figure out how to make the most amount of money. So the things that are going to go on their truck have incentives attached to them. Now, there are a lot of legalities. I'm not even talking about the stuff that's legal or not. I'm talking about there has to be a financial (laughs) incentive, right? So it's an X and Y. If you are a Budweiser distributor, and you're selling a lot of Budweiser, even though you're getting less money because it's a cheaper product, right? You're still selling the volume, right? Everything is economics. This is, mm-hmm. let's not forget, because craft brewers, when I started making this film, I realized most of them did not really understand the business of it because they just mm-hmm. did it for love. That changed, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, yeah. But, but so, so the distributors are really there to provide that service to take the, the beer from the producer to the store. That's their job, right? What goes on that truck is up to their discretion. And for a long time, the big brewers, when I was at Mike's, incentivized them. Now at Mike's, we showed them that we could be successful. So we got on the trucks, but something had to get off the truck for us to get on, if that makes sense. Same thing in convincing sure. the retailer to do that. So it's not that distributors are good or bad. It is a system. And so they go to Washington every year and continue to go to Washington to lobby to keep this association and these distributors alive. And you should also know that, for example, at the time I was making my film, Anheuser-Busch had a lobbyist in every state, right? These people, the distributors, the big brewers are extremely powerful. And because of that fact, it actually ended up helping craft brewers later on because this is a very local business. Mm. And because when I started making my film, bear with me, there were only 1,400 breweries in America, the Brewers Association, the small brewers started to realize, oh, if the big guys can go to Washington and talk about why they belong, if the distributors can, we're hiring people in communities. We are right there on the ground we're going to start amassing some political power. And so that is something that happened after the film came out. Actually, my film did go to every member of Congress. Um, I don't know if they watched it. I'm not really in touch with them. But um, but it was interesting <laughs> that they wanted to learn about all of the idiosyncrasies that the average person, including the people in Congress, don't really understand. It's very complicated It's based on a lot of history and for a very long time, just like many other industries in America, really until 2000, when the internet opened everything up, it really opened up the market for small producers, for entrepreneurs. And it didn't really do that for craft beer because of this three-tier system. You you mentioned, Annette, the, uh, you know, the idea that there's a finite amount of space on the trucks. There's a finite amount of space in the beer coolers, right, in America's supermarkets when you walk down the beer aisle. They're not putting more coolers out there. They're not putting 
your local bar is not adding more taps, maybe the one here and there, but like it's a finite amount of space. So we're talking about incremental sort of what people in the industry and what people uh, in your movie uh, refer to as hand-to-hand combat of you've got to go out and win space because they're not going to create it for you. You're going to have to win it from a competitor, right? And I think that's a good way to get at this idea that, you know, you touched on in the film and that I wanted to talk about on this episode a little bit, which is that when craft brewers started really getting traction with these full flavored beers, or similarly when Mike's Hard Lemonade started getting traction with its with its lemonade flavored malt beverage products, right? You know that consumers want it. They're they're getting great feedback. Um, they're trialing. They're getting conversion. Um, and to get it to market, it's got to go through the distributors, as we've discussed, and that means that something's got to come off the truck. Um, in order for them to get there. Distributors, whether you, you know, listener think they're good or bad, as Nat said, like it's less about like a moral judgment on what they do and more about understanding how that system works because of how it positions them as as sort of a gatekeeper or as a fulcrum uh, in the marketplace, right? They have a lot of power. And what I think is important though, as sort of a, a counterpoint to that or a caveat to that is that they are also they are also in the business of selling that beer themselves. So just like they're a customer of the producer, the retailer is a customer of the distributor. And a distributor, you'll often hear, especially like during the salad days of the craft beer business last decade. So like, you know, 2013, 2015, whatever. Distributors were distraught because they couldn't get IPAs into their portfolio fast enough to satisfy the demand of the retailer, right? I need an IPA in my portfolio. They keep asking me, and if I don't, if I don't get them an IPA, someone else is going to get them an IPA, right? So like they have this pressure on them as well. They can't just stonewall forever. If people want Mike's Hard Lemonade, they've either got to, that distributor has either got to give the supermarket that Mike's Hard Lemonade, or it's got to give them something that looks and tastes enough like that, that the retailer's customers are going to be satisfied and start buying that. And the same thing happens with craft beer in in this era. So we're talking about like 2005, 2007, um, where they're starting to get traction. They've got these full flavored options that everyone you know, seems to want more and more drinkers are gravitating away from light adjunct lagers and towards these ales, these, uh, you know, brown ale was really popular at that time. IPA is starting to come on strong. And so the distributors are faced with a little bit of a problem, right? They are getting enormous pressure from the producers that they're aligned with. And we talked a little bit about this. There are red houses and there are blue houses and red is Anheuser-Busch and blue is Miller Coors, which is now Molson Coors. Um, and Anheuser-Busch infamously was always a lot more sharp elbowed with, you know, how it sort of corralled its distributors, right? Like Molson Miller Coors was maybe a little bit more of a partner. Uh, ABI was, or Anheuser-Busch, they weren't yet InBev. Um, was uh, was a little bit more um, that relationship was a little bit more lockstep, I suppose. Right? They for a while were asking for something like ninety five percent of the distributor's portfolio had to be ABI and Hazard Bush products. Right? Like that's an enormous, enormous share of that portfolio. But that's what they expected from their distributors in order to carry these very valuable Anheuser Bush brands. Kraft kind of starts to erode that and. All of a sudden, these distributors come back from the retailers again and again, and they're hearing, hey, like I, they really, you know, they like, sure, they like Bud Light and we've got the new promotion, whatever, but they keep asking me for an IPA. They had this Sierra Nevada or they had this, you know, Bells or depending on what part of the country, wherever these like regional breweries were, I got to get them something. The retailer wants this type of beer. I got to get them something like that. And AB is not immune to that feedback, right? They don't like it necessarily, but they they start to realize that, you know, these craft beers or these micro brews, which was something we were still calling them at the time, uh, aren't going away. Can you tell that was long winded and I'm sorry I had you on so you could talk, but I'm talking. Uh, <laughs> uh, can you tell me a little bit about sort of that tension or, or what happens then? How does 
How do these big companies react to that tension there that the distributor is communicating to them? I just want to make one point about something you said before that we should not forget, which is um, beer is not, and alcohol is not like every other consumer product, right? You have to be Mm -hmm. 21 to drink it. And so there is an added complexity because of that, right? It, there is, and we have to just, we can't just let that slide. Like that, that is a really important component of why there are regulations and we should all be happy that those regulations exist. Okay. Now putting that aside, um, I, I think a couple of things about what you said. Number one, uh, there are big distributors. We should also remember that even back then there were some independent distributors, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's really hard to be independent in an industry where 90%, you, it, over 90% at the time, if you include the big imports like Corona, were owned by just gigantic companies ha- selling $100 billion a year of product who had power, massive power over regulators, just lobbyists. Um, and so... At Mike's, actually, my favorite distributors, I hope they're not listening, were Anheuser-Busch distributors. And there weren't very many of them out of the 450. I can't remember how many, maybe 20 or so. But they loved us because we weren't regimented. We just did whatever the hell we wanted. Um, And that was the success of the brand, by the way. You can tell from how I talk, like, this is what you see is what you get. And, And they liked, you know, the... The way we thought about things, they liked uh, the, the, we were a little bit eccentric for the industry, which was very, very regimented. And I think that helped craft brewers. I think that if you had some business expertise and if you could make the case, right, that people want your product, here's the issue. And this was fascinating to me. And I believe that there's a scene in the movie about this. So if you went to a store in, let's say, circa 2005, 6, 7, 8, any supermarket, forget there are some states that only have liquor stores, again, very complex. But if you, if you went to a supermarket, you would see a wall of beer. And this mm-hmm. was the fascinating part. And this is actually how craft beer and even Mike's, how we got in, right? There were six packs of cans and six packs of bottles and eight packs and 12 packs and 20 packs and big, large size. It was insane. And it literally looked like a wall. So then Mm -hmm. you have to ask the question, right? Do we really need for an entire wall that says Bud Light? And do we need right next to it an entire, like, and you know, there were little cans and big cans and bigger cans. It was insane how much there was. And so Finally, when, and we as the producer, by the way, I personally went to meet with Walmart and Albertsons and Kroger and all the big chains, right? We were allowed to do that. We just couldn't give them the beer. But we actually, as the producer, had the ability to go sell it in. And so that was my argument. It's like, really? You think, like, all I want is like one or two slots for my six packs. Like, you think that if you're missing a gigantimous, like 20 pack of a giant, like who's going to care? No one's going to notice except the big <laughs> right. guys notice because no one wants to give up space. So then yep. it, it was, it, it was the actual retailer who, as you correctly said, is the one who is closest to the consumer. Don't forget the only people who, who get like, this is what I want. That's how we got mics in. We just, people went in and said, I want mics, right? Like, yeah. So did, I, I, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I think what happened back then was that the bigger, more regional players, right, that people heard of were the ones who were selling the IPA to the distributor so they could fulfill the wish of the retailer. I think something else to remember is there were 1,400 breweries. I don't know the exact number today. I probably should have checked. Um, 10,000? We're up somewhere. to over... Over 9,000. Yeah, Yeah, we're closing in on 10,000. So closing in on 10,000, right? How did that happen? Most of those breweries do not put their beer in a bottle with a label and sell it in what's called off-premise, which is um, a grocery store, a supermarket, etc. So you're really, when you're competing with the big guys, it's not so much on premise in in a bar or necessarily in, you know in your own tap room you're competing when you want to get on that shelf and create a wall of craft beer 
And the wall of beers, I mean, this is another scene in the movie, which as you can tell, I keep on referencing it. Like it was just so formative for me, but like the, you know, like a lot of the reason for that wall, as you laid out is it's, I mean, it's basically advertising. They've just got these big effectively like, you know, uh, building block type billboards in each cooler where it's like, okay, all the 24 packs, I'll say Miller on the side and the distributor shows up once a week to make sure they all are lined up just perfectly. And then the bud distributor comes in next and he puts all of his stuff all perfectly. So, I mean, this system is, it's made to look seamless to the American drinking public. You don't see the guys doing it every once in a while you do, but for the most part they're in before hours or whatever. Um, but it's very calculated to make it look the way it is. And I mean, all the stores have planograms, which, you know, uh, actually, why don't you tell us what a planogram is? I think the listener would benefit from hearing someone who's, who's, uh, who's had to deal with them before in such intimacy. So I remember um, I was making the movie. I was with Sam Calagione at Dogfish, still a very small independent company. And I wanted to film him in a supermarket. And Mm -hmm. so we went to a supermarket. I think his product was, I think they just had like six packs of of Dogfish Head. I can't remember which one. Maybe it was Pumpkin Ale. And uh, it was local um, in Delaware. And I said to him, so how do you deal with the category captains? And so you know, he didn't really know what that was because he was just sure. starting out. So it turns out that in the large chains, they have these people called category captains and they create planograms. And a planogram is just a plan of what the shelf is going to look like. I believe I actually put that into the movie too, because I wanted to yeah. educate as much as I wanted to entertain. And the category captains are the ones who do the math. Soon, I'm sure that will be taken over by AI. What was fascinating when I was at Mike's was to learn that the category captains, which I had never heard of before because I had nothing to do with the retail business, category captains were funded by the big brewers. So you mm-hmm. actually had to make a case. Now, again, we all, it, all goes back to, it all goes back to shelf space. So it, you have to make the case that if you put your six-pack on the shelf, what other six pack is going to go away? And so they weren't very happy to take it from one of theirs. So they, they, they would take it from somewhere else. And so if you actually study right. the, the, the beers that were sold, you will see that other small companies just started to go away slowly but surely because they weren't taking away their Gigantamus 20 pack of 20, 20 ounce whatevers. Um, they would just take it from somewhere else. And so planograms are a very big thing if you want to understand how to get in. Um, They're just, it's pay for play, right? This is, this is just the business that they're in. Hey, we want this shelf space. We want this placement. Hey, we want an end cap. Hey, we, you know, this, this, and that. And it's, it's very transactional. It's very out in the open because it's totally legal in alcohol and beer specifically, because that's what mostly moves through, through the grocery channel, spirits and wine, a little less so. Um, and certainly this tap lines is a podcast about beer. So we'll focus on that. It's not allowed. I mean, it does happen in much more clandestine ways, but it is not out in the open in the same way that it is in those other non-alcoholic categories. So you're fighting, uh, in some ways you're fighting kind of a, a, a different battle. You have to convince people. You can't just buy your way to retail. You have to convince these category captains you have to convince the retailers and and uh, to your point like the category captains another extremely controversial practice because they're funded by by the very companies uh that stand to benefit the most from the status quo so obviously these craft brewers in those early years they didn't even know that this was a thing and they start becoming acquainted with it and and this was an enormous challenge for them and another challenge that i think is important to like get at in in something that you like ran down in the movie uh, (laughs) 14 years ago was the fact that while, you know, these craft brewers are trying to crack the crack the code on getting into the supermarket or trying to figure out how to make distributors understand that this is a product worth carrying. And Hey, you know, let's, let's get this on the truck. You're going to make more money on this. Um, So they're pitching from that angle, but Anheuser-Busch and to some extent, you know, Miller Coors um, have started to come around to the idea that, all right, this microbrew stuff isn't going away. Um, we would we would love for it to go away, but our distributors keep bothering us about it because these retailers keep bothering them about it. Let's figure out a way to give them 
something close to what they want, get them off our backs. If it works out, great, we'll do some business on it. If it doesn't, it may wind up being a category killer that helps us out anyway because this stuff's annoying to us and we would rather not have to, you know, have to bother with these, you know, pesky craft brewers nipping at our heels anyway. Um, and that dynamic, I hope we can maybe unpack a little bit because I think like that's something that in, in coming years, you know, into the 2010s, people became more familiar with the idea, the notion of craft versus crafty, right? Like there was this idea that, all right, there's true craft beer and I'll leave aside my opinion on like the definition of craft beer. That's for another episode entirely. But there was, there was this conception that there was some sort of authentic type of craft beer. And then there were these lookalike brands, these faux crafty uh, beers, right? And, and ones that sort of got marked in the 2010s where Blue Moon and Shock Top were both like identified as, you know, like big brewers attempts to make craft lookalike products. Blue Moon was, was a, a Miller Coors product. Shock Top was an Anheuser-Busch product. But prior to that, um, in the era that you were, you know, making the film, so about five, six years ago, they were the Anheuser Busch was already was already running that playbook. And you in the film, you you pick up a beer at one point uh, from like Green Valley Brewing Company, I think it is, and it's and you it looks like a craft beer. It's got the funky label and it's a, a nice brown bottle. You know, it's it, it looks the the part. And it says it's brewed by Green Valley Brewing Company in Fairfield, California. So uh, take us to Fairfield, California in 2006, 2007. When you go out there to film, um, you go looking for Green Valley Brewing Company. And uh, what do you wind up finding? So on the hottest day ever in San Francisco history, um, we drove (laughs) from San Francisco to Fairfield, California. I went to bars. I stood on the street corner and uh, started asking people about this. Nobody had heard of it. And so um, I finally drove out to the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, which was a giant Anheuser-Busch Brewery. There is no Green Valley Brewing Company. And so I wanted to make the point that just because anyone can put something in a bottle and put a label on it and call it something... It doesn't mean that it's real, which I wanted to start a conversation, which you mm. just alluded to, which is who says who says that's not a craft beer, right? If it tastes like mm. a craft beer and it looks like a craft beer, should it be a craft beer? Which led me to this whole idea and question that I still have, which is what is craft beer? Does it matter that it's owned by a big company? Why are they hiding it? And more importantly, does the consumer care? And does the consumer care question is the most fascinating question that I'm still left with after making Mm. the film, knowing everything I know, um, following, I still keep in touch with most of the brewers that I covered in the film. Um, A lot of interesting things have happened to them. Um, But I, I think that the strategy back, even when I was at Mike's and into, and for a long time, actually, for Anheuser-Busch in particular was, first, if, if a new entry comes into the market, we're going to try and copy you. And that's what you're talking about, right? We're going to, and they did right. that in FMBs. They came out with all these crazy products, all of which, by the way, like died. And so did, uh, at the time, Coors and Miller. And they all died, like the craziest yep. Right, whatever. When well, Zima was what? Yeah, they were trying to... Right. Well, Zima, Zima was before. Matilda Bay. Zima, well, yeah, but this Zima was, was their, before. This, yeah, Zima sure, was, was their saying, attempt. Like, yeah, but, but... Right, this but, was their strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the strategy after Mike's, after you're successful, so what they do is they look at it and they go, they ignore most of it because, you know, it, most right. products die by themselves, right? A very fast death. Um, so they try to copy you. If they can't copy you, they try to kill you. That's the category killer that you're talking about. And then, which I think we're about to get to, if they can't do any of those, they try to buy you. And that's the part for me in making the film that became fascinating. The minute someone, uh, a small craft brewer or regional craft brewer sold to one of these companies, I mean, all hell broke loose, right? All of a sudden, they were bastardizing it. It wasn't a craft beer anymore. And so, the question that I think is really interesting is 
In every other industry, the American dream, right? I work in tech now. The American dream is you go build a company, you raise money, and then you sell it and you get rich. I mean, that's, that's the American dream. But it seemed like the consumer of craft beer didn't really agree that that's where they wanted craft beer to go was for the brewer who put their you know money and time and energy into building this business they didn't necessarily wanted to leave independent hands and i think that that's mm. really interesting yeah no absolutely and this is so in 2011 anheuser-busch at this point anheuser-busch inbev because anheuser-busch gets hostily taken over by inbev which is a brazilian firm masquerading as a belgian firm and then would be would be masquerading as an american firm just a few years later uh abi buys goose island right this is the first major public mm -hmm acquisition. Now they had owned a portion of the Craft Brewers Alliance mm -hmm. uh, through which they owned a portion of Red Hook out in the Pacific Northwest, but that was never it was always a little bit more abstracted to the American drinking public. Goose Island had it's the right amount of sort of it's the right time where um, it, people are paying attention to craft beer more. Social media has become much more widespread. The, the beer, the craft beer forums have had years to develop. Goose Island, the acquisition hits at exactly the right time to just create this enormous outpouring of vitriol and this, you know, rending of garments and gnashing of teeth over, over the sale of this brewery. And this would continue this sort of, uh, you could call it performative, and I, I would call it performative in some instances. I think a lot of people felt genuinely about this. And I think there was also a fair amount of sort of kayfabe or whatever you want to call it as, as people sort of postured about selling out versus staying independent. But that, that is where this wound up going because of, you know, and it happened for the rest of the decade, right? Like, uh, uh, they acquired wicked weed in 2017 and, and people were still upset about that. And then they, I think platform in 2019, which they basically shut down at this point. But, um, but that's that's where we ended up, largely because Anheuser Busch could not figure out how to do the crafty style beers that like would compete directly with the independent, the actual quote unquote craft beers at the at the market. They couldn't get their distributors and their their retailers to buy into these these brands that they spun up. Zwiegenbach was one of them. Uh, Pacific Ridge was another. Uh, Green Valley Brewing Co. was another, right? Like there were these, they sounded like craft beers. They they were from big, they were from Big Bad Anheuser-Busch. Um, and I think that that's like so interesting because it's one of the things that has carried through. So first of all, it sets up that acquisition spree that Anheuser-Busch and again, to some extent, Molson Coors goes on throughout the 2010s, right? They couldn't copy them. So now they have to start buying them because the retailers haven't stopped asking for them. Consumers haven't stopped asking for them. Like they got to have an answer for this to give those distributors to put on the trucks because this is this independent sort of quasi-independent tier, right? Um, but it's also interesting because uh, uh, we when we look at sort of how that's all shaken out more recently, um, it's, it has it kind of been sort of one of the fears that um, the craft brewers all the way back in 2009 or 2007, we were talking them for, for beer wars. It's what they, what they worried about. A lot of them were worried that, you know, there would be sort of deliberate category killing or they would be co-opted in a way that would, you know, make them not craft anymore. And, Sometimes that came off as paranoid and I think some of it was unfounded and maybe a little bit, maybe it was a little bit paranoid, but other parts of it have, have certainly come true, right? One of the, one of the lasting impacts I think of this acquisition spree and the, in the period that preceded it is that craft as a, you know, uh, uh, adjective became sort of this empty vessel, became this cipher where it, it became you know, used for everything and, and wound up meaning nothing. And that I think was to the great detriment of, you know, some of those small producers that you had on the, the film. I, by way of wrapping up though, uh, you've had the benefit of, you know, it's been 14 years since the movie comes out, right? You've, you've moved on to even a different industry than you used to be in. 
you're no longer working in beverage alcohol. It sounds like you still, to some extent, wrestle with this idea of like, what what did it all mean? Why do consumers care? Was it was it real? Was it marketing? You know, uh, uh, where do you stand on it now? Like, with the benefit of hindsight, how do you reflect on that question that was central to Beer Wars uh, 14 years ago? So there's a part of me that hopes that the that the film opened some eyes. I think that. Um, what I really wanted to do was to get people to understand that we, every time we take out our wallet or now every time we take out our Apple pay or whatever you're using, um, we're making a choice, right? And so it's up to every consumer to vote with their wallet. And a lot of people talk about that, but if we want small enterprise, if we want craft uh, and again you're right i don't know what craft means anymore right but if we want mm. to support entrepreneurs right and then there's the question of are the people who were in my film who did sell their companies are they still entrepreneurs what does it mean right but if you want to support mm. small business you have to support small business by supporting them which means that when you go to the store you buy from them and you spend your money with them and you support them on social media and you help them grow Otherwise, we live in the toothpaste category and in the cereal aisle of every supermarket, where basically, even though there are lots of brands, they're all owned by two or three companies. There is a consolidation mm -hmm. in America. And what, what Craft Beer did, and what my movie really focused on at a specific time in history, was this movement from, wait, are we only going to have two large beer companies in America? Or are we going to allow the consumer to have choice and variety, right? So the reason that the Green Valley Brewing Company and all of those uh, copycats failed was probably because they didn't taste very good because the mothership, I'm not sure that they wanted it to succeed that badly, right? I mean, mm. I went and saw, I, I can't say the same about Blue Moon. I, I went, I went to, you know, I met the brewer. There was actually a lot of passion behind that, even though it was owned at the time by Coors. Right. But, but, you know, a lot of these were just, so you can't just make stuff up. I mean, at the end of the day in America, what should happen was we should have an open market. And I, if I want to make whatever it is that I want to make, should be able to get to market, especially because for the first time in history, I have access, I have global access, actually, to everybody in the world, right? It's up to me to build my audience and to have great context and pricing and all of the things that go with creating a product, but we mm -hmm. should have access. And so the question is, right, that remains, that continues to befuddle me, if you will, is what does the future of the beer industry look like? Now, I want to add one more thing as we finish up Please. here, because we could talk for hours, but I think that one of the things that we did at Mike's was open up the door with distributors for them to talk to, to other small independent companies. Cause we were a tiny independent company, like when we started. Right. And, and so you have to prove to the big guys that you can be successful. In this case, you have to break through the middleman. Right. So if you can show success, they kind of are like, Oh, what's next. And I just want to tell everyone that back then we started talking about the future of other beverages. And we started talking about the the growth of soda i am allergic to alcohol i only drink soda like uh, i drink a, a san pellegrino or perrier at the time and i was always mm -hmm. adding things to it so you see where this is going i don't know if people know this but the company that launched white claw is the same company from the same people who launched mike's hard lemonade and so the lesson from that i think too is that you have to open the door and you have to prove yourself, right? But then you also need patience. You, you know, the, the most important thing, um, I don't mean to sound like a professor, but the most important thing that I've learned in my career in business is that timing is everything. Yes. But more importantly, it's up to the consumer to decide. So if you can, if you can create a product right? And maybe nobody knows that they want it. And they, nobody was walking around going, gee, I wish there was alcoholic, you know, uh, uh, hard soda. Club or soda. I, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like that is such a stupid idea. Um, or I wish that somebody put alcohol in lemonade, right? Um, but, but once you give them something, 
then they go, oh, wow, I want it. And then you should be able to get to get it to them. And you should be able to succeed at it because that's ultimately what capitalism is, right? Is building a business that people want while not hurting anyone in the process and making it successful and growing it. And so for all the people who criticize the Greg Cooks from Stone and Sam Caligione from Dogfish Head and everyone else in the film who decided at a certain point that they needed to get to the next level of their business because they needed the distribution power of the company that was going to buy them or merge with them. Do we, do we blame them? And that they also were tired and wanted to cash out maybe, and maybe they deserved it because they were pioneers and it's, it's hard and it's hard to convince consumers of, you know, of, of that idea. But, Mm. but I do think that an entrepreneur's ultimate goal is to be successful, to deliver and to make something that people want and to then provide it to as many people who want it. And sometimes that road, sadly, because of the system, forces you to sell your company. Nat Baron, we've gone the distance. Thank you so much for taking us on a trip down memory lane back to 2009, back to the release of Beer Wars, back to even before that, when you built Mike's Hard Lemonade into something approximating the juggernaut that it that it is today. Uh, thanks so much for being here with us on Tap Lines and sharing uh, sharing your expertise and uh, and chatting through that pesky middle tier that every beer company has to get through if they want to if they want to get to their consumers. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much, Dave. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>